Good morning. How you doing, 11 o'clock? Oh, you're awake and I love it. Hey, well, welcome to Rocky Peak. If you're here for the first time or millionth time, we're glad you're here, whether you're in the Interim Worship Center or joining us in the summit. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we jump into our time of teaching, I've got a couple of announcements, a couple things I want to highlight. Now, the first one is actually what you just saw on the screens. In this next year, Pastor Mike is going to be leading two study tours over to Israel for about 10, 11 day trips. Now, if you'd open up the program you got on the way in, there's an insert that gives you information about about the study tours. On one side of it, you have a letter from Mike that shares a little bit of heart as to why we do these trips. On the back side, you see something similar to what you saw in the video, which is a list of all the different locations. Because here's the question, why go to Israel? Why go and see all of this firsthand? And here's what I love about the answer is that here at Rocky Peak, we strive every week that whenever we teach the word to not simply do a simple translation or to simply contextualize it, but to paint the word in a sense to where you can actually experience what it was like. But nothing truly comes close to the life-changing experience of getting to read and experiencing the word where it actually took place. Myself, I got to go in May with our first study tour when we went out there and just walking through where Jesus walked experiencing the wilderness like the Israelites did, walking through the city of Jerusalem, going off the beaten path and hiking to the tops of mountains where people like David did is truly extraordinary. And we would love to invite you to join us on these study tours. So we've got two coming up in the next year. We have one leaving actually in September, and there's about five spots left for that. And there's another one leaving in April that signups have just opened for that. And so these spots are going to fill up quickly, and we keep the spots limited because we want to keep it to one bus because it's easy to get in and out of certain locations. Now, one thing that makes this study tour very unique is the people we've partnered with, GTI Tours. One thing I really like about them is they're all about you experiencing the land of Israel. So for one thing, you get to experience the majority of that country. But the other thing that's really spectacular about them is they don't want this to be like a Disneyfied version of Israel, meaning that many times you're not going to be waiting in lines at tourist traps, but they take you to many of these locations, but take you off the beaten path. You do a lot of hiking and going through the wilderness. One note on that, Having experiences myself, you see in all the publications, be in shape to go. They are not messing around. So be prepared for that. But I would love to, pray, to ask you to prayerfully consider maybe joining us on one of these study tours. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to highlight is this past week on campus, we hosted a fantastic event called VBS. Now... If you didn't get the chance to experience this with us, I want to tell you how amazing the sight of seeing this room filled with almost 400 kids screaming, cheering, having a good time, but also in unison saying things like, even when I feel left out, even when I feel... <laughs> even when I feel afraid, Jesus loves me. And so I not only want to highlight how amazing VBS is, but I want to take a moment and I want to highlight how spectacular the kids team is. From every volunteer to the actual in-office kids team, these men and women truly are incredible servants. And so can we just honor them as we... So... 
We've talked about this from up here before. If you're looking for a place to serve at Rocky Peak, you're not going to find a better group of people than the people that serve in the kids' ministry. And let me encourage you to go over there and get involved with what they're doing. The last thing I want to highlight is next weekend during all three of our services, we're going to be doing baptisms. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, if you'd like some more information on baptisms, there's more information in your program and there's more information online as well at rockypeak.org. So anyways, before we jump into our time of teaching, I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand and meet people and you're going to need it because I am way long-winded. So get up, stretch. Inside your program, you've got a uh, message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our time of teaching. Jesus, as we come before you now, I'm excited because we get to open up your word. And I'm excited because every time we open up your word, we see that you, Jesus, are bigger. And I pray that over us as a congregation, I pray that over us as individuals, that as we dig into your word this morning, that your power, your love, your grace and your kingship in our lives becomes bigger. Let each and every one of us walk out of here today with a bigger impression of you through your word. Jesus, as we go into this time of teaching, my prayer today is, always, is the same prayer always. May you increase. May I decrease and let people see clearly who you are through your word. We love you, Father, and we all said, amen. amen. So again, if you're joining us for the first time, I not only want to welcome you again, but I want to take just a few moments here at the top to bring you up to speed into our series. You see it up on the screen. Since about the beginning of the year, we've been in a series called Jesus, the Crucified King. Now, this series is actually the third in an epic trilogy of series where we've been looking at the life and teachings of Jesus as told through a key leader in his early movement named Mark. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at the gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Now, this specific series has focused on the very last week of Jesus's life. Now, about a few weeks ago, Mike started, to, we got to the crucifixion, and Mike started slowing down as we started to look into the crucifixion. Because here's the question we need to ask, and it's a core question. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because this is our king. This is the son of God. And he was tortured in a barbaric way. He died in a brutal way. And if you've been with us in the series, you've seen that through the trials that Jesus went through, he could have avoided this. He could have said something. He could have gotten out of this, but he chose to go to the cross. So why? And Mike has been sharing with us over these last couple weeks that when you ask that question and you go to the New Testament to seek an answer, what's amazing is you don't find one single answer, but you find several. Mike has been using the pictures. If you take a beautiful diamond and hold it up to the light and you spin it just a little bit, that as the light shines into new areas, you see something new about it. And so that's been a metaphor for what we've been doing over these last couple of weeks, that we've been taking the crucifixion of Jesus and holding it up to the light of the New Testament. And every time we spin it by asking that question, why did Jesus go to the cross? We gain new insights, we gain new wisdom, but more importantly, this picture of what Jesus did on the cross becomes much bigger. And so just to recap, two weeks ago, one of the answers we saw, why did Jesus go to the cross? Was to be our substitute, to pay the penalty for our sin on that cross. Last week, as we asked that question, the answer we saw that Jesus went to the cross to remove the curse we had incurred through our sin and to restore God's blessing. And so today we're going to be asking that question again, why did Jesus go to the cross and be looking at a third answer? But before I jump into it, I want to ask you a question. 
When I say the phrase D-Day, what images come to mind? Many of us would probably say we think of World War II, right? Specifically, when I say D-Day for many of us, we immediately start thinking about the Allied invasion in Normandy Beach, right? And so all of us have gone through history class. We've seen World War II on the History Channel nonstop. We've seen recreations like Saving Private Ryan. And so we're all fairly familiar with what happened when the Allies invaded Normandy Beach. And I think we could all say, what did that moment represent for World War II? Well, that moment represented the turning point in the war, right? That moment represented the beginning of victory for the allies. That moment represented the beginning of the enemy losing the territory that he had taken. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because as we ask the question today, why did Jesus go to the cross? In our scripture, we're going to see very clearly that the answer was to win the war. And so today we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. But specifically, we're going to be talking about how when it comes to the spiritual war, through the cross, Jesus has won the war. And so we're still in series, but we're actually going to be taking a break from Mark today. We're going to be going a little more to the right in your Bibles, to the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bibles, you've got an app, open them up, turn them on, Colossians chapter 2. If you're following along in your note sheets, there you have a section titled, The Crucifixion Part 3. Now, as you're turning to Colossians 2, let me set up a little bit of background for this book. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and roughly it was written about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And so Paul, through this letter, is addressing a group of Christians, a newer church in the ancient city of Colossae, which is now Asia, what would now be Asia Minor. Now, we're going to be starting in verse 6 of chapter 2, and many scholars will tell you that the section of scripture that we're looking at is considered to be the heart of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And what we're going to see in this heart of the letter is that what he does is he very clearly emphasizes what Jesus accomplished through his crucifixion. So that's where we're going to pick up. So we're going to be in chapter six, excuse me, in verse six of chapter two of Colossians. So the apostle writes, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Now let's stop there and paint this picture. Paul is writing to Christ followers, probably a lot of newer Christ followers. And so he's using that temporal language. Now that you are a Christ follower, now that you have Jesus, the question is, well, what do you do now? What are your next steps? And what does he say? He paints a picture through the word rooted. Now, if you have your physical Bible and a pen, or if you have an app that's capable of highlighting, I'd love to encourage you to make, to highlight the word rooted because he's using a picture of a plant, right? Because it's an image that we all understand that if you want a plant of any kind to grow up, to be healthy and produce fruit, you need to have it where it can get rooted into healthy soil. And so what is he saying to Christ followers using that picture that if we want to grow as healthy, maturing 
Christ followers, we need to be rooted in Jesus. Now, I asked you to highlight that word because near the end of the message, we're going to come back to this. So now Paul is talking about next steps. Well, what he's going to do next in verse 8 is he's going to warn them about a very specific danger. And he's going to warn them using strong war language. So let's read verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, again, like I said, Paul is using war language in that. In fact, the, po- the proof of that is in the Greek word that we've translated to captive. It's a Greek word called sulagogaio. And what that word means in the original language is taken as a prisoner in war or taken as plunder in war. And so what Paul is doing through verse eight is he's painting this picture of a spiritual war that is going on between two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. And here's the picture that's being painted through this. See, when we sinned as a race, as a human race, when we sinned, what that meant is we rebelled against God, our king. I love how Mike puts it. We committed treason against our king. We said, I don't want you in my life. I don't want your commands or decrees in my life. I want to do it my own way. And when we rebel through sin, we believe a lie that sin has given us our individual individuality, but it's actually the opposite. What happens when we sin is we don't gain independence. We pledge allegiance to the kingdom of the enemy. What happens when we sin, when we walk away, when we rebelled against God and walked away is we now placed ourselves under the authority and rule of the enemy. And when we live in his kingdom and only leads to one place, death. A couple of weeks ago when I was up here teaching, I talked about a verse in Ephesians 2. So this week I went ahead and wrote it out in your note sheet. So go ahead and look at that. Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So you start to see through Paul's writing this picture of these two kingdoms, this picture of a war going on. Now, many of you know I'm a movie guy. I absolutely love movies. But do you know what I can't stand in movies? Is that when a movie has a depressing ending. I hate walking out of the movie theater and feeling sad after spending something absurd like 35 bucks. I want to feel happy walking out of a movie. But when I walk out of a movie that has a depressing ending, I find myself asking the same question. Why? Why did it have to end like that? Why did that have to be the end to the story? And if you look at our lives as if it was a movie, this would be a really depressing ending, wouldn't it? And in fact, because of our rebellion, because of our treason, this is the ending we should have gotten. This is the ending we deserve to get. We rebelled from our king. We were in the opposing kingdom. It leads to death. Credits roll. It's over. But what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to continue writing and going that not because of our own power, but because we have a king who loves his creation, even though the rebellious, we have a king who has come down to this world and fought for his people. We now have the opportunity to have a different ending to our story. 
And so as Paul talks about what Jesus has done, you're going to notice in these next two verses, he's going to use king language to describe Jesus and his power. So let's see this. Starting at verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head. He is the head over every power and authority. So you see that? This is where we would pull a phrase by a phrase similar to saying that Jesus is the king of kings, meaning that any power, any authority, whether they're earthly or whether they're spiritual, has nothing when it comes to Jesus, the one true king. And so what he's saying is all of that awesome power, authority, and kingship lives in the person of Jesus. And it says that it lives in him, but in the original language, that word lives better translate to the word dwells. See, the kingdom of God is found in the presence of Jesus. Now in the Old Testament, what was unique about this is that presence, God's presence was in a very specific place, the temple, and we didn't have access to it. But now because of Jesus, the kingdom of God dwells in us, the new temple, Christ followers. That means that we have the king with us. And that means that you and I as Christ followers, we have unrestricted access to our king and unrestricted access to his kingdom. And so what Paul is going to do now, he's going to use another metaphor to paint this picture. And he's going to use the metaphor of circumcision. Now, Paul is probably writing this letter to a primarily non-Jewish audience, but globally, Jewish circumcision and what it stood for was well known. And so this is a powerful metaphor that he's using. So let's keep reading. Verse 11, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See, Jewish circumcision was something that God enacted with the nation of Israel back in the book of Genesis. It came to represent many things. Jewish circumcision came to represent Jewish identity. As every Jewish man was required to be circumcised, it was a physical act that set them apart from every other nation. But more importantly, Jewish circumcision was to symbolize the covenant between the nation of Israel and God. See, the Jewish circumcision was a physical act, a physical reminder that you are throwing away your old life, your sinful life, your life in darkness, and you are making a new total commitment to the Lord God. Now, what Paul is saying through this metaphor is that because of Jesus, we no longer need a physical circumcision. We now have a spiritual circumcision Paul is saying that because of Jesus, this is no longer simply a Jewish thing, but this idea of spiritual circumcision has been opened up to all people. That because of Jesus, we can now internally throw away our lives of sin, throw away our lives in darkness, and now walk in his light and his kingdom. Another way to put it is that because of Jesus, I can now renounce my citizenship in the kingdom of the enemy. I can renounce his claim and his authority over my life and I can now commit to the kingdom of God. And so as Paul paints these pictures we've been reading, the question we have to ask is, well, how was all of this accomplished? 
And so as we look at these next couple of verses, we're going to see, as Paul writes clearly, this was accomplished through what Jesus did on the cross. So let's keep reading. Verse 13. When you were dead, so you see that language from Ephesians again? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So do you see these last two weeks as we've talked about circumcision in these two verses? See, the first one, while we were dead, Christ forgave us. See, to deal with the problem of sin, to restore our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, then what aligned us to the enemy in the first place, sin needed to be dealt with permanently. And so Jesus came and became our substitute. And then it goes on to talk about how he took the curse away from us, that it said that he took our legal indebtedness. Another way of saying saying that is is a record of your wrongs. So imagine our sins, imagine all of your sins, imagine your rebellion, imagine everything, everything you've done against God being put into a ledger and a record of it being kept. And you know that debt is piling and getting higher and higher and eventually you need to pay this. And so what Paul is saying that Jesus took your ledger, took your sins, took your rebellion, took your pride, and he nailed it to the cross. Another way of saying that is that that your sin, your ledger was crucified with Jesus. And what happened to something that was crucified? It was destroyed. There's no longer a record of your wrong because of the cross of Jesus. And then he goes on to say one final thing in our section. And what's unique is that he uses war language again as he says this final verse in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now again, if you have the ability to highlight your Bible or your app, I'd love for you to make a note of the word triumphing because that is a key thing that we need to remember that through the cross, Jesus has triumphed over the powers and authorities. Now, who are these powers and authorities? Well, it's pretty likely that Paul is including the earthly powers and authorities that stood against Jesus, the religious establishment, uh, the Romans, anybody else that opposed Jesus. But when we dig into the context, we know that Paul isn't just talking about them, but he's also talking about powers and authorities in a bigger sense. When Paul in this verse says, Jesus disarmed, he stripped the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle and he triumphed on them, he's talking about spiritual powers and and authorities that would oppose Jesus. He's talking about the devil, demons, and the kingdom of darkness. And he's using war language to talk about them. He says that he disarmed the powers and authorities of darkness. That word in its context, in its original language, in that context means how you would disarm an opposing general who had fallen on the battlefield, that you would strip them of their armor. You would strip them of their weapons. You would strip them of their pride and authority through that act. And it says that Jesus through his cross has done that to the enemy. And it says that he has triumphed over them. And again, 
As we look in the original language, this is a wartime picture. That word symbolized a Roman general who after a successful war would be in a chariot and ride through the city in a victory procession. So what Paul is doing in this verse is he's equating the cross of Jesus to the victorious chariot of a conquering general. So do you realize in this entire passage, Paul is making it very clear to his readers that when it comes to spiritual warfare, any claim, any right, and any authority the enemy had over you has been rendered powerless because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I like how he puts it in chapter one of Colossians. It's there on your note sheets. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, spiritual warfare is a big topic. And spiritual warfare is also a topic that makes many people uncomfortable. And often the reason why it makes people uncomfortable is because we talk about it poorly. Because often when people talk about spiritual warfare, we place all of our focus and all of our conversation on everything but Jesus. And the reality is when we look at what scripture talks about spiritual warfare, it tells us that the cross is a glaring symbol that the war is won. And so today what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to continue talking about spiritual warfare, but I want to talk about it through the filter of Jesus' cross. And there on your note sheet, there's a section titled The Turning Point in the War. And what I want to do in this section is I want to ask the question, what does the cross of Jesus teach us about spiritual warfare? And so we're going to look at two truths about spiritual warfare because of Jesus' crucifixion. So there on your note sheet, the first fill-in is this. Jesus' cross has become a symbol of his triumph. Jesus' cross has become a symbol of his triumph. Now, I grew up with uh, two older siblings. I'm the youngest in my family, and I love my siblings. But anybody that grows up in siblings, you, with siblings, you know that often you have conflicts with your sibling over territory, right? Over what you claim to be yours, and you fight over territory in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. That's my chair. That's my toy. That's my cake. That's my room. It's my time to be in the bathroom. Whatever it is, you would fight. So me and my siblings, like anybody else, we would always argue over territory. And I don't know if your siblings ever did this, but I remember if I would make a claim to something, I would say, hey, that's my remote. That's mine. One of my siblings guaranteed in a smart alecky way would go, well, I don't see your flag on it. And as a kid, it gave me a complex. I wanted to walk around with a bag of flags that said Dre on it just so I could claim ownership to things. Because that's what that symbolizes, right? When you plant a flag, it symbolizes ownership, does it not? So when you look at that act of planting or raising a flag in wartime, what does that symbolize? What symbolizes ownership, it also symbolizes defeat. It's symbol, like planting a flag or raising a flag in wartime when you have taken territory is like putting up a big neon sign that says new management is in town. (laughs) Jesus' cross is a symbol of his triumph. 
Jesus's cross is a symbol of his victory once and for all over the enemy, over the kingdom of darkness. But one other thing that Jesus's cross is a symbol of, it's a symbol of his unfathomable and his awe-inspiring power. Now, the reason I say this is because before Jesus, what did the cross symbolize? Defeat, shame, you got overpowered and overrun. See, and so what Jesus did is he took this, this symbol of wretchedness, of brokenness, of defeat, and through what can only be done through ultimate power, he redeemed it and turned it into an eternal symbol of his triumph. It would be like today taking a white flag, which is a symbol of surrender, and through unimaginable power, forever known, making that become a symbol of victory. See, that's what Jesus did on the cross. See, if you remember a couple weeks ago when Mike first started talking about the crucifixion, that he gave us a historical picture, that now when we think of crucifixion, we have religious imagery, but that wasn't so back in Jesus' day. See, when people were crucified, only the lowest of the lows or those that had been guilty of treason were crucified. Mike had also informed us that during the Jewish rebellion against Rome, something like 500 people a day were being crucified publicly where everybody could see. Because at that time, when you saw someone crucified on the cross, what message did it scream? Game over. You lost. When Jesus was on his cross, his enemies, the religious establishment, the devil, even his own followers, when they saw Jesus dying, what message did they perceive from the cross? Game over. Because remember, messiahs don't die, let alone in the most shameful way possible. See, there in your note sheet, I put a quote that I really like. To treat the cross as a moment of triumph was about as huge a reversal of normal values as could be imagined, since crucifixion was itself regarded as the most shameful of deaths. See, but this whole journey we've been on through the gospel of Mark, have we not seen time in and time again that we have seen God's awesome power through Jesus to turn, take the, what we consider to be impossible and to turn it on its head? So let's ask this question, why was this so important for Jesus to redeem the symbol of defeat and turn it into a symbol of his triumph? And it was so important because by doing that, by changing the meaning and the imagery of the cross, Jesus was putting an exclamation point on his victory over the enemy. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about how we perceive the enemy, you think about cultural perceptions of the devil, what do you think of? You can think of either like a really villainous looking person in a three-piece suit, or you think of the cartoon picture of a guy in a tacky red cape and a pitchfork with horns. But you know what's a common picture that many of us have as adults? Is we picture the enemy as being the king of hell, we picture God as being the king of heaven, and we picture them being equal in power. And we picture them locked in this never-ending war and we really, really hope that God wins. And so when we have that picture, we look at something like the cross and we see that Jesus was resurrected three days later and we go, whew, oh, good. Okay, I got really, really worried there. And we can view the cross similar to a football team winning by a two-point conversion in the fourth quarter. 
But the reality of what Jesus did on the cross is much, much bigger. Jesus went to this shameful death. Jesus took this, took this symbol of defeat and he turned it into his eternal symbol of triumph to put a massive exclamation point on his victory and to prove now and forevermore for all of eternity that when it came to the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the enemy, God didn't just squeak a victory by, it wasn't even close, it was a landslide. And that's why he did that because only ultimate power could change that simple. Only ultimate power could remind us of that. See, for some of us in this room, when we look at the cross, this is the first time we're seeing what it truly means. But for some of us here, this is, we needed that reminder. But for all of us, there's power in that symbol, isn't there? And when we see the power of what the cross represents, then it's like we prayed earlier, the picture of Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we talk about how this is the turning point in the spiritual war, but in your individual lives, this is the turning point. When you start to see Jesus as bigger than your sin, when you start to see Jesus as bigger than your trials, as bigger than the enemy, as bigger than your own pride, as bigger than your temptations, when you start to see a truly big Jesus Jesus, that becomes the turning point in your life that changes everything. And that leads me to our second point. Through the cross of Jesus, Christ followers are empowered. Through the cross of Jesus, Christ followers are empowered. Let's think about this in a beautiful act of submission and repentance, when I give my life to Jesus, when Christ followers give their lives to Jesus, what happens? You become the new temple. You become the place where Jesus dwells. He now lives in you. And so the power and authority that conquered sin, death, and crushed the enemy now lives in you. That now dwells in you. And so as I say, that empowers us. What does it empower us to do? Live. It empowers us to actually live, to live the life of freedom, grace, and love we were created to live. See, one thing I love about Paul's writings and all of his letters is that he often uses phrases such as with Jesus, with him, in Jesus, in him, or in Christ. Because Paul is regularly trying to remind the body, the church, of our new reality that because of Jesus, when we have Jesus in our life, there is now no separation between Jesus and us. Our lives are now found in two very important words, in Christ. Do you remember I said earlier, where is the kingdom of God found? In Christ. And we now live in Christ. And so we are empowered to live in freedom. We are empowered to live away from any authority, any claim, or any dominion the enemy once had on us. We are now free from that bondage. We are now free from death and destruction because we now live in the rightful kingdom in Christ. There's a problem. There's so many Christ followers that love Jesus, but we don't live in his power. There are many Christ followers that love Jesus, but we don't acknowledge or live in this truth. And for many of us, when that's the case, then rather than living a life that's empowered, 
what happens is we live a life where we feel very spiritually defeated. And often when we're living that spiritually defeated life, what happens is we have that false view of the enemy of power and him being an equal to God. And to paint a picture of it, it kind of feels like a cosmic game of tug of war. Where on one side we see God and his kingdom. On the other side we see the enemy and what we perceive his kingdom to be. And caught in the middle we see ourselves. And we feel like it's this giant cosmic match where they're fighting over us and they're pulling, they're pulling. And we feel like some days God seems to be winning and those are good days. We feel like other days it feels like the enemy has the upper hand and he seems to be winning. And the most crushing thing about that picture is we feel completely powerless to do anything about it. Men and women, I need to be very, very clear about something. In grace, in love, and in truth as your brother, that picture of life is a lie. That picture of life is a bold face lie because there is not a power struggle between God and the enemy. There is only a victory in Jesus and defeat in the kingdom of darkness. See, how do we get out of life feeling like a tug-of-war match? Well, we need to take our mind off of the lie. We need to take our eyes off of the lie, and we need to place our eyes in truth. And so again, like Paul said in verse 210, we need to put our focus in what is true, and that is that our lives are found in Christ. See, the point that Paul is making to the church, to the body, to us today is this. When Jesus through the cross defeated the enemy, it's not some future defeat that we're waiting to happen. It already did. See, when we get caught up in that lie of feeling like the enemy has power over us or that the enemy has power over God, then sometimes we feel like it's my or it's our responsibility to defeat the enemy ourselves. The reality is it's not our responsibility to defeat the enemy because Jesus already did 2,000 years ago. It's done. There in your note sheets, I love what Paul says in Romans 8 as he talks about Christ followers being empowered. Knowing all these things, we, Christ followers, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The truth of the cross is that it symbolizes Jesus' victory. And it symbolizes that you and I as Christ followers can live in freedom in that victory and free from the bondage of any claim or right that the enemy would have over us. Got to ask a tough question though. This is true. And in light of the fact that this is true, then again, go into that tug of war picture. Have you noticed that it feels like so many Christ followers don't live in his victory? Don't live in his triumph. But it feels more and more like we're constantly just being, just living in a war that we're losing. And so I wanna talk about that a little bit further because when you feel like you're in a battle, when you feel like you're in that war-torn place, what's going on is not a power struggle between God and the enemy because God has won the war. But what's going on is the difference between believing truth or believing lies. 
See, while we're on this side of heaven, we still have an enemy out there. And he's a defeated enemy. He's a depowered enemy. But he has a unique weapon and tactic. And so we need to talk about this. So there in your, uh, there in your note sheet, we have a section titled The Battle Today. And your fill-in is this. The enemy's primary weapon is lies. The enemy's primary weapon is lies. Have you ever heard the devil described as a lion? And when you hear that description, what kind of picture do you think of? Picture this giant, evil lion prowling around that's ready to devour us. The reality of the cross of Jesus is that this lion has had his fangs and his claws ripped out. But here's the thing about his lies. He has been depowered by the cross of Christ. But if he can deceive you into thinking that he hasn't been, if he can deceive you into thinking that he still has fangs and claws, then you're gonna start living as if that's true, will you not? And that's the primary tactic of the enemy. It's not power, it's lies. It's not that he's equal with the Lord, but he can give this perception of power. It's not about what he's doing, but it's about what he's trying to convince us, to deceive us of, and therefore we will live accordingly. And it would be one thing if he was a bad liar. Have you ever encountered bad liars in your life? Those are the people you want to play poker with, right? You know who some of my favorite bad liars are? Little kids. Because they're so bad at it. Have you ever come across a kid who can be completely smeared in chocolate cake? And you go up to them and go, did you eat the chocolate cake? And even though they're covered in evidence, what are they going to say? No. If the enemy were a bad liar, this would not be an issue. But the truth about the enemy is he's not only a great liar, he's the best. He truly is the best liar ever. In fact, Aaron, you know, sheets in John's gospel, when Jesus himself described the enemy, he said this. He said that when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And to dig further into the tactics of the enemy, do you know what makes his lies so powerful? is that he spins them in a way where they don't sound like lies. He spins them in a way where to us, in our human, our flesh, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our temptation, they sound believable. They sound tempting. Or they sound like those horrible thoughts we've had in that brokenness. Or they sound appealing for a time. And when you, it's been my experience, just in my spiritual life, it's been my experience working at a church for well over a decade and meeting with different people that often the lies of the enemy tend not to focus on him. And so going back to the media portrayal of the devil, we usually see this in TVs or movies where the devil shows up and offers to buy your soul in exchange for something, right? That tends not to be how the enemy actually works. Often his lies have nothing to do with him, but often he is lying to you about your value, your worth, and your standing in God's eyes. He makes it very you-focused. 
And he's trying to get you to not dwell on truth that you are a loved, forgiven child of God. He's trying to get you to dwell on these awful, horrible things about yourself because that will move you farther and farther away from truth. These lies take form in many different ways. Sometimes these lies affect the way that we see ourselves and our appearance. And struggling with how we look, struggling with what we see in the mirror is not a teenage or young adult issue. It is not a gender issue. It is a human being issue. And so often the lies that the enemy will say in our head is, will say in our head would be things along the lines of, nobody likes the way you look. Why are you even trying that? You don't look like so-and-so. Look at you, you're getting older. How dare you try to do this? How dare you try to wear that? You don't have enough mass or you're too big, you're too tall, too short, whatever it is. He attacks your worth. Another lie of the enemy is often comparison. He will try to tell you that you are never going to be as good as somebody else. Why are you even trying? You're never going to be as good of an employee as so-and-so. You're never going to be as good of a father or a mother as so-and-so. You're never going to be as good of a brother or a sister. You're never going to be as smart or as good of an athlete. You're never going to be that person. And here's an awful one. You're never going to be as mature or as spiritual as that person. So why even try? Sometimes his lies are the temptations. All those areas where we're weak and tempted and his lies are very subtle. Well, come on, who's going to know? It's just a little bit of money that could be in your pocket. It's just, an, it's just infidelity. What's the big deal? It's just sex. It's just a little bit of drugs. It's just alcohol. How could that harm anybody? It's just a few nights away from your family. They don't need you. You know what the, one of the worst ones is? Within the church, the capital C church, he attacks your ability to grow as a mature kitchen. He puts lies in your heads and he tells you, look around when people are worshiping. They're feeling God and you don't. Something wrong's with, something wrong, there is something wrong with you. Hey, when you try to read the Bible and you don't understand it, that's because it's you. Don't even try. Just stop it. And those lies stunt our growth. Those lies stunt our desire to keep pursuing the Lord. Those are the lies that get us. And so what happens because of his lies is that we take our focus off of Jesus. We take our focus off of the truth. We take our focus off of being rooted in Christ. And what happens is we begin to dwell and live in the lie. And our focus has gone back to him. See, as Christ followers, the enemy has no right has no authority, has no dominion over us. But when he lies to us and he takes our focus, then what happens as Christ followers is we start to give him footholds in our lives. And so what do we do about this? Well, we need to learn what we teach our children. See, we're really good as adults, and this is a great thing of teaching our children Ephesians chapter six, which is the armor of God but we're really bad at applying that to ourselves. And I want to be very, very clear about something. When Paul told, said to put on the armor of God, he was not writing to children. He was writing to adult Christ followers. 
And the armor of God in Ephesians chapter six talks about, talks about defending yourself from the flaming arrows of the enemy. And you can read about the different pieces of the armor. All of them are vital. All of them are vital for our growth. But there's two pieces in particular that jump out to me for what we're talking about. See, the first one is the belt of truth. And the second one, our weapon, the sword of the word, the Bible. And so the enemy's primary weapon is lies. But what do we do to combat his lies? Well, that's your second fill-in. We combat lies by being rooted in truth. We combat lies by being rooted in truth. Do you remember I said we were going to come back to that word, rooted? It comes back to what Paul was teaching us Many, many years ago, I was listening to one of my favorite preachers teach, and he was talking about truth, and what he said impacted me from then on. He was talking about that truth is not a statement. Truth is not a philosophical concept. Truth is a person, and truth is Jesus. And so when Paul is saying we as Christ followers need to be rooted in the truth, he's saying that we need to be rooted in Jesus, We need to be rooted in his truth. And how do we do that? Well, again, when Paul Paul writes in Romans 12, he talks about that in Jesus, Jesus renews our mind, meaning he changes the way we think. And why that's so important is these lies often can make up here feel like a battlefield, right? And often it feels like, All we hear is the lies. And so if this is where the lies are taking place, then this is where we need to bring truth into. Because going back to the thought of a young child, when a young child is afraid of the dark, what do you do? You turn the light on to show them there's no need to be afraid. When it feels like there is only darkness up here, then what we need to do is we need to bombard it with the light that is Jesus Christ. And there's many different ways to do this, but what I want to highlight today is how do you start rooting yourselves in the truth is one of the most foundational, fundamental, and important ways is by actually engaging God through his scripture, through his Bible. See, the lies of the enemy have devalued in our eyes what the Bible actually is. And he's very intentional about that. The Bible is not just a set of rules. The Bible is not a boring old book or a textbook akin to our high school algebra books. The Bible is the presence of God. It is living and active and cover to cover filled with truth that will shine out the darkness of the enemy. And so when the enemy convinces us to be away from Bible, then we are embracing lies. But when we embrace the truth of the word, then what happens is we start experiencing freedom. We start leaving the realm of being spiritually defeated. And we start realizing that up here is filled with Christ and Christ alone. Because what truth is found in the Bible? That the enemy has been defeated. What truth is found in the Bible? that the Lord Jesus is living and active and present with you. What truth is often found in here that none of that is true? So let's shine a light in our minds. Hey, specifically, what does this look like? This looks different for everybody. That's one of the beautiful things about God is he wired us all to be differently. For some of you, 
Rooting yourself in the truth of the Bible may mean a specific time of day where you read it. For some of you, maybe it's taking it in bursts multiple times throughout the day. For many of us, and one of my big encouragements, I would encourage us to be people that are memorizing scripture. Because if I don't have my book or my app on me, I always have it up here. For some of you, maybe the way you're wired isn't to read it, but listen to the Bible. For some of you is to write things, to write things out as you're reading the Bible. There's many different ways to do it, but my charge to you, Christ followers, is to drown out the lies of the enemy, to root yourself in the truth of his word. And not just, and not just once a week, not just when you come to this place, but we get lies from every which way and direction, don't we? And so we need to saturate ourselves with truth and it's available to us when I'm rooted in the truth of Jesus then regularly do I experience the truth that he is present that he loves me that his power and authority lives within me that the enemy no longer has any claim or authority over my life. When I'm rooted in the truth of Jesus, regularly do I experience the fact that I am now free. And so that leads me to the last question I want to ask you on your note sheets. How will you root yourself in truth? All of our actions may look different, but the same core question is true. What are you going to do? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do this month? What are you going to do this year? What are you going to do well beyond that to be rooted regularly, to be saturated in his truth? Because I'm telling you, when you take those steps and you do that, then you will experience what it means to live in his triumph. This isn't in your note sheets, but go ahead and write down the reference, John 8.32. The power of being rooted, saturated in his truth. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And is that not where we want to live? I'm going to invite the worship band to come on out and we're going to engage in an extended time of worship. And I'm excited about this time because Lauren's going to introduce a new song to you. And this song is very, very powerful for what we've been talking about. You're going to hear this language of Jesus' triumph. In fact, I want to highlight a specific lyric in the song. It says that the ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. And so we're going to extend our time of worship a little bit because we want to encourage you to do a few things. We live in the victory of Jesus. And so this song uses very clear words that we live in that. And so one thing I want to encourage you is let's make this song his victory parade. Let's make this shout of one of celebration and triumph. And so we're going to invite you to learn and sing this. But we've extended the time because if you want to pray to the Lord, if you want to pray to your king, if you want to pray to people around you, we want to give you the time to do that as well. There's not a lot of room up there, but if you want to come up there and take this to be an altar where you get down to your knees and pray to our victorious Jesus, you're welcome to do that as well. This is your time to connect with the Lord. 
At this time, too, our ushers are going to come forward and we're going to take our gifts and offerings. But as I pray, remember that we're heading into a time that is celebratory because the war is won because of the cross of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, thank you for your victory. Father, thank you for your cross. Thank you for your empty tomb. Thank you for your power and your authority. Thank you that you fought for your people. Thank you that you pulled your creation out of being, from being captives back into the kingdom of light. Thank you that that power and authority that conquered sin, death, and the enemy lives within us. Thank you that we don't need to live our lives feeling as if we're caught up in this game of tug of war, but that the enemy has been defeated once and for all through your cross that the war is won, and what that means is we get to go home in you. I pray for this time, let this be a time where we shout and celebrate. Let this be a time where we eagerly thank you for your victory. Let this be a time that the conquering King Christus Victor is in our lives, is present in this place, and when we walk out these doors, he's still gonna be present with us. Thank you that we walk in your triumph. Thank you that you are continually drowning out the voice of the enemy and his lies. Thank you that he has no power in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you love us. And we love you so very much. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Feel free to stand with us. You know, the enemy may try to deceive us otherwise, but the truth is the war is over. And the symbol of that is a wooden Roman cross and an empty tomb. See, as you live this place today, keep in mind that as a Christ follower, the enemy has no right, authority, or dominion over you. Amen. As you leave this place, wherever you go, whatever you do, whoever you interact with, remind yourself that you live in the victory of Jesus. As I was studying this week, I came across this quote, and I want to close with this. The unseen powers and the invisible forces that dominated and determined so much of my life need no longer to be feared. A greater power and force was and is at work, which could rule and determine our lives more effectively. In a word, Christ. Triumph indeed. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave today, over to my right, there's an amazing group of men and women who would love to pray, pray with you over in the prayer corner. Next week, I really hope you can join us. Mike's going to be here. And uh, as he continues our series, we're going to be transitioning out of the crucifixion and looking specifically at Jesus' death and burial. And what are those implications in our lives? So we'll see you then.